Well, turn to John chapter 2. You uh, received a flyer. Uh, last year we had, uh, if you remember, we had uh, Dan Wallace, a New Testament scholar, come and speak. And for those of you who showed up, you're like, wow, that, that was spectacular. We've brought another, we're going to bring another fellow in at the same caliber, in my opinion, and his name is Gary Yates. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's going to address the wrathful God or loving Savior, reconciling the God of the Old and the New Testaments, uh, <clears throat> and, and dealing with a bit of a, a controversial issue. And, and how can you have a God who says, annihilate even the women and children in the Old Testament, who, who, another God who says he loves one another and blah, blah, blah. Right? So he's going to address this. It's going to be a great evening. If you have someone struggling with just um, the things of the Lord, etc., I'd say bring them along. It's free. Uh, we're not doing this as a fundraiser. Uh, there's dessert receptions being provided, and it's just going to be a wonderful evening, and it's the Woodland Country Club on October the 27th. You do need to register. Uh, one, as we have limited seating, uh, last year we had about 170, and I think we've uh, uh, allocated 200 for this event, and I know it will fill. So we'd love to have you for it. But anyway, let's get to the text. John chapter 2, verse 1. Now on the third day, John chapter 1 has elevated Christ. We've seen him in all his glory, and now we're going to get to the first miracle. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited at the wedding. We're three days into this gig. A typical wedding in the first century lasted seven days. Aren't you glad that's not true today? <laughs> One day of a wedding will cost you a fortune. Imagine seven. And my lawyers in the room are going to love this. If you run out of food, legal action could be taken against the family. How's that? So you better have enough grape juice. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. And Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, uh, she's, <laughs> she's a typical mother. She didn't hear a thing her son said. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there was six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which is how much? 120 to 180 gallons of water. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. They did. When the head steward, this is the hostess with the mostest, tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. <laughs> You've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are only seven miracles recorded in John's gospel. John tells us, hey, hey Jesus did a ton of stuff. I've only picked a few. Why? What, what did he say? So that you might believe or it could be rendered, go on believing that Jesus is the Christ. Now, our miracle, our scene, is occurring here in Cana. So we are not far from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. It was not uncommon for family or friends to invite the locals to their wedding. So it's not, a, you know, Jesus has been invited 
And someone said the reason they ran out of wine was that Jesus brought all his disciples with him. Uh, well, who knows? Uh, <clears throat> this band of brothers is, is, is all coming along. Who knows, right? But we've run out of wine for this event. <clears throat> and as I stated, that is pretty serious. In your notes, I mentioned uh, the, this town of Cana. Well, in fact, this is the town that Nathaniel is from, is, is from Cana. And again, I have no problem seeing that he has family members there. Let me set a couple things here uh, as we look at this scene. Again, normal wedding lasted seven days. Uh, Guests were expected to remain the entire time. This was a big to-do socially, right? Just as it is today, right? I mean, if you've been invited to a wedding, you usually stay for the reception afterwards. You're hoping they serve steak, but you you stay... to compensate for the gift that you bought. Uh, It it was socially unacceptable, as I stated, to run out of food or wine, and you could suffer a lawsuit if you did not have it. That's why Mary is very distraught. It's an embarrassment for the family that there's no wine, and she's expecting Jesus to do something. Joseph, by the way, is absent here in the text, which means probably he's passed away at this point. So Mary is turning to her oldest son to deal with the problem. By the way, is Mary's name mentioned here? No. She is never mentioned by name in the Gospel of John. She's only referred to as the mother. Uh, And same with John, the author. John the Apostle is never mentioned as John. The only John that we see specifically referred to is the baptizer. Which is interesting. um, Because who takes care of the mother of Jesus? John. So I think there's this relationship in this intriguing. Mary is expecting, isn't she? She's expecting Jesus to do something. And Jesus responds in in a a manner that that might shock you. Uh, I I had these pictures with an economic crisis. I've done enough weddings to know uh, Murphy usually shows up at some point in a wedding, right? Now, as a pastor, you can make a mistake at a wedding and they'll forgive you. Make a mistake at a funeral, they'll never forgive you. But uh, a wedding, they, they'll, they'll be some... But, you know, we've all seen the, the uh, accidents at a wedding. I love this one. Uh, that's just par for the course. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, no wine is a crisis. And that is why Mary responds. Look what her response is. Um, they have no wine left. Assumption, Jesus, you need to deal with this. You need to go out and get some wine. I don't know where she's expecting him to do that, but you need to go get some wine for the, uh, this party and, and to save the family from embarrassment, etc. Jesus' response seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Woman. That was a typical way to greet a lady. So it's not like how it's the connotation today. If you said woman, uh, to, to a lady today, you'd probably get slapped. But um, <clears throat> it is not the way to refer to one's mother. He is distancing himself from her. I mentioned this in your notes. Um, I mentioned this in the second, the last two sentences under chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. It's an unusual way in which to address one's mother. It would suggest that Jesus and Mary's relationship begin a new phase as Jesus moves into this ministry. In fact, his response, not only woman, but why are you saying this to me? Literally, it is what to me and to you. And it, it's, it's harsh. 
I mentioned in your notes, there's two ways to interpret this. One is that, what have I done to you that you should do this to me? Why, why are you implying that I should be helping out here? Which seems harsh, and it is. Or it could be, this is your business. How am I involved? Either way, Jesus is disengaging himself and slightly rebuking Mary. Why? Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, and and even says, my time is not come. The word hour, H-O-U-R, sorry for my accent, the hour, as I mentioned there in your notes, which occurs several times in John's gospel, is the time in which Jesus is glorified. He's he's crucified, he's buried, and he rises from the dead. And what Jesus is saying to Mary, you, you are pushing me into this realm that, uh, no, that, that's on God's timetable, our timetable, not yours. Carson, in his commentary, makes this statement. It's in your notes. It's, it's, it's well stated. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. Can you imagine the response? I mean, this is the perfect child. He's never sinned, right? Why can't you be like Jesus? Can you hear that? She has borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider since Joseph is out of the scene. But now that he has entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. That's got to be hard. What did Simon tell Mary at the temple? At the baby dedication, this will pierce your heart, right? And, and the separation is, is starting to take place here. And, and yet Mary <laughs> says, well, whatever he tells you you do, you'll do. Uh, so she, she's assuming, yep, he's going to go ahead and do this. And as you see in the text, we have six water jars. It's significant. Um, the, the, the historicity of this account is so vivid, Notice what type of water jars are they? Clay? Stone. Stone was used for ceremonial vessels. And guess what? Uh, Just even in the last six months, they discovered an enormous stone uh, factory in northern Galilee. It was known for making these vessels. They were used for, it's very hard to come by a limestone cup if you buy antiquities, etc. But those were used by, uh, for purification purposes, etc. They wouldn't use clay. Those were seen as impure vessels. And so we have six water jars for Jewish ceremonial washing, for the mikvots, etc. And, and Jesus says, fill it up, and, and you know the scene here, and again, uh, we're dealing with a, a, a massive amount of, of wine. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Uh, this is some, one party, I'm telling you. And verse 11 is key. It says, Jesus did this as his first signs when he revealed his glory and the disciples believed. As we look at these seven carefully selected miracles in John's gospel, I want you to watch. There's two things that are orbiting the, the signs. One is God's glory, and the other is faith, believe. I've only recorded a few miracles, John tells us, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one, the glorious one. And and that's true with all the miracles. We'll see it here. We'll see it with the last miracle, the raising of Lazarus. I wish I could 
uh, we might even do a comparative study of the two later on and looking at the two, one of faith and one of glory. They, they orbit around the miracles. And, and you ask, how is it the disciples could see this and, and, and glorify God and believe? I mean, is it, was it that a lot of water was turned into wine and it's really good wine? Or what's going on here? I, I think it's very significant that there's two Old Testament images that are coming through this miracle. Let me give these to you. This is key as we look at this. Uh, John knows his Old Testament, and he's going to weave this through. The first of these is the significance of a wedding ceremony. Isaiah 62 says, as a bridegroom is, loves his bride, so I, the Lord, love my people. You were like a bride to me, God says in Isaiah. And the wedding ceremony was associated with the messianic days. It indicated, as you see there in your notes, that uh, this is it. This is, uh, this is the end. It's the Lord coming to His people like a groom does to His bride in celebrating. It's not a coincidence that the first miracle that's recorded in Jesus' ministry is at a wedding feast. All right? I want you to see that. It's very significant. But there's another thing that's very important, and that is the abundance of wine. Turn to Amos of all things. Turn to Amos chapter 9. It's in the Old Testament. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Amos 9 verse 13. Be sure of this. The time is coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will catch up to the reaper and the one who stomps the grapes will overtake the planter. Juice will run down the slopes. It will flow down all the hillsides. I will bring back my people Israel. According to Amos, recording the Lord, who said, when the end comes, the messianic age, wine is going to flow like crazy. It's going to be a glorious time. <laughs> that's, that's what the text is saying. Later, in a Jewish writing in the intertestament period called Second Baruch, you don't need to know it, but it says in the Messianic age, one grape will yield 120 to 180 gallons of juice. Hmm. What's happening here? I am the Messiah and I have arrived. And the first miracle I'm going to do is surrounding a wedding and it's going to be a whole lot of wine. Both images laced with overtones here that are so clear to any writer. And it's clear, I think, to the gospel, to the disciples, when they see all this, woo, this is it. This is the one. And we believe. And so we see glory and we see belief coming through here in this miracle as they orbit around this enormous scene that is laced again with Old Testament imagery. Questions or comments on this? This is huge. This is very significant. <laughs> yes, Gail. Yeah, the Lord's in charge. And you're going to see that with all the miracles. Um, and, and faith is not a prerequisite to the miracle, usually. The blind man has no idea who Jesus is. It takes him three times before he clearly sees who Jesus is. Yeah. Correct. You're right. It's not happenstance. And the Lord is going to use this 
to, to, to move and, and to indicate. Uh, it's the first of the miracles, again, of seven. And again, John says, I've carefully picked only seven, so you might see it. And we're going to, as we journey through the, these uh, events, I want you also to watch the I am statements, because they also orbit around the, uh, the uh, miracles. For instance, the blind man, I am the light of the world. Boom, he gives sight to the blind. Again, not a coincidence as we move through this, all right? So we'll, we'll, we'll tease those out as we move along. It's not only the first miracle that we see, but also the first journey to Jerusalem because there's no birth scene in John's gospel, right? We talked about that. Jesus is in all his glory from the get-go. We don't have a little baby who needs his diapers changed in John 1. No, you see the one who was with the word, the word was with God and the word was God, and we saw his glory, Look at verse 12. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, not far from Cana, all right? Uh, two days journey. And he said, he's with his mothers and his brothers and his disciples. And they stared there a few days. Capernaum will become Jesus' village, so to speak. It's where Jesus spent a lot of time. Um, now, the Jewish feast of Passover, this is the first of three Passovers that are clearly mentioned in John's gospel, which tells us that Jesus' ministry had to have been at least three years. That's unlike, if we didn't have John's gospel, we would not have known Jesus' ministry was that long uh, because the synoptic gospels um, only mention one or two Passovers, but we see at least three in John's gospel. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers sitting at tables. So he made a whip of cords, which was not allowed in the temple, and drove them out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, take these things out of from here. Do not make my father's house. A, the, the, the Net Bible has marketplace or a place for merchants which is key because he then quotes from Zechariah. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house or jealousy for your house will consume or devour me. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a minute. So the Jewish leaders responded, what sign do you show since you are doing these things? Signs? Signs are given so that the glory of the Lord might be seen and that you might believe. Look what he says to the Jewish leaders, the frozen chosen. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. The Jewish leader said, this temple's been construction for 46 years. Herod the Great's employed 18,000 men to build this sucker, and you think you're going to destroy it? It's the largest temple complex in ancient history ever. Greater than anything in Egypt, anything in the Roman Empire. 35 acres, and you're going to destroy it in, 46, in three days? And are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures or what he had stated. Let's look at this cleansing of the temple. These two first, first miracle, first coming to Jerusalem, because obviously, eventually we're going to be back in Jerusalem where indeed his prediction is going to be true, right? Where he is destroyed and he raises uh, up in three days. But you look at this, uh, there are two temple cleansings in the Gospels. And I've heard it say, ah, there is a mistake here in the Bible. John has it at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have it at the end. 
So there you are. And you can't possibly think Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Why not? Why not? Burden of proof is on you, not me, to show otherwise. Uh, in fact, there are vast differences between John's account and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I've recorded those in that long paragraph. But I want to highlight a couple things in your notes, starting with uh, down the, the, the latter part of that first paragraph. I give you several reasons why I believe we can argue there's two temple cleansings. Jesus' actions on this occasion were not permanent in their result. Well, I think that's the case. Jesus is fairly unknown. At this stage in his ministry, you know, we're not printing t-shirts yet. By the time he's done, everyone knows who Jesus is. Well, look at the triumphal entry, right? They're coming out in thousands, probably. And finally, the statement of the Jewish authorities in 220 would tend to support at an earlier date. In the second temple cleansing, they want to kill him. This one, they're still got a few questions before they deliver their verdict. They're so good. What's the backdrop of this? Again, it shouldn't surprise you. We need to go back to the Old Testament. And this time I need you to turn to Zechariah. Zechariah, if you get to the Italian prophet Malachi, you went too far. It's the second to the last book. Uh, Zechariah, and we're going to turn to, of the Old Testament. Uh, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. It says, on that day, chapter 14, verse 20 of Zechariah, the bells of the horses will bear the inscription, holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's temple will be as holy as the bowls. Cooking pots are made out of clay. They're not holy vessels like the stone vessels, but even they will be turned into holy. And it says, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will become holy. The side of the sovereign Lord who offers sacrifices may come and use some of them to boil their sacrifice in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the sovereign Lord. You want to know something in the Hebrew? That term can also be translated merchant. I think this is a fulfillment we're, we're seeing even directly cited here in, in verse 17 of John 2. It is a reference of the Lord coming to his temple. And making everything holy. And the merchants are, are going to be removed, the text says, or the Canaanites. And that's the case here. And I think there's two reasons we're dealing with the cleansing of the temple. In your notes, I mentioned this. The first of these is to create a place. This is secondary, but I think there is, this is a valid uh, reason why he's cleansing the temple uh, for the Gentiles. I'm not going to go into great detail. This is a layout of the temple complex in the first century. The temple complex was divided into what we call courts. And there's only one area, most of us are Gentiles this morning, there's only one area that Gentiles could go and worship Yahweh. We couldn't get any further. There's a little line that you see. We couldn't get any closer to the temple proper than this area. This is where the merchants were. In other words, they were in the area that only Gentiles could worship. They were hindering Gentile worship of Yahweh. That's why we got to clean this sucker out. So I think that's part of the reason we're going to get rid of the Canaanites or the merchants who are hindering the worship of Yahweh in the temple. We're going to make this holy, right? 
That's why he says in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. I'm all about the Father and the Lord and all that's there. But there's a second reason, isn't there? And a primary reason. And Jesus even tells us, we don't have to guess. He tells the religious rulers that my body is is taking over as the temple. Uh, Notice in your notes under number two, replacement with Jesus as the new temple. Incorporating Psalm 69 Jesus seems to suggest that the temple is not just a building, rather it's the resurrected body. And rather than going to the temple to meet God, the temple is replaced by Jesus himself. What dwelt in the temple that left in Ezekiel? He went over the Mount of Olives, looked back and mourned. What was it that went out of the temple and rested over the Mount of Olives before it took off. The Shekinah glory. Right? Ezekiel, remember that? Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. The glory of the Lord went to the Mount of Olives and looked back and mourned over Israel. Guess what? It's back. The glory of the Lord is embodied in Christ and He dwells in their midst. We have seen His glory. We saw it at the miracle. We see it in Christ. Doesn't that make your socks roll up and down? I mean, that gives me a yellow puddle right by my stand. That, that can't get any more exciting than that. <laughs> All of this, th- this isn't a bunch of fables. God is weaving the storyline together. We're bringing prophecy from 700 years into the equation. Jews in the Intertestament period also saw this. Messianic overtones are being draped over the life of Christ, and it's clearly seen. This is our one. This is God incarnate, His glory in our midst. And here's the great news. Ephesians 1 says, we've been brought into that glory. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been brought into the glory, and we have access to the holy of holies 24-7. Now that should put a yellow puddle at your chair. And and this idea of destroy, it's ironic. Um, I mentioned this at the bottom of your notes. The imperative here suggests an ironic tone, indicative of the prophets. It can be rendered, go ahead and do this and see what happens. (laughs) Right? This temple that's taken 46 uh, years to build thus far and will continue. In fact, when the temple is destroyed in the first Jewish revolt, it's still being built. It's that glorious. But it's nothing like this temple. And the religious rulers, as you are going to see as we move through John, become very hostile. In fact, by John chapter 5, at the pool of Bethesda, they're ready to kill Jesus. That's just chapter 5. Jesus is a serious threat on many fronts, theologically, politically, and otherwise. Right? And they also refuse to believe. And that's why we close this section, which serves as a bridge into chapter 3. Next week, we're going to look at Nicodemus. It is such a sweet uh, and problematic uh, passage. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. It says, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem, this is verse 23 of chapter 2, at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in this name because they saw the signs. There it is. I've recorded only a few miracles that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus would not entrust them 
himself to them because he knew all people. John chapter 10, Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his flock and they know him. But there are those who refuse to believe, right? They refuse to recognize. And it says in verse 25, he did not need anyone to testify for he knew what was in man. The man is, (laughs) Israel will reject collectively their Messiah. And they will do what was prophesied here at the temple. And that is, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. Which is not what they anticipated. They wanted a political king to come and overthrow Rome. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. I've come to show you the glory of the Lord. I've come to serve as the Savior of all people. And that's what we're going to see as we move through this book. This is the Jesus of the, of the Gospels. Questions or comments? This is great stuff. To see all of this coming together. You know, you, you read through this, and, and I've always wondered, what in the world? Why a, mar- a, a wedding, uh, you know, uh, as a first miracle? Really? I mean, I'd have someone raised from the dead. Man, do it right. If you're going to do it, start off. The reason it's a miracle of a wedding with a lot of wine is, is what we just said. It's what was anticipated of the Messianic age when the Messiah comes. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> Just as John carefully selected the miracles, so did Jesus. He did not heal everyone. And faith was not a prerequisite. He carefully chose. I mean, why was the man born blind? Jesus said, so that the Son of Man might be glorified. That's what it's about. Well, let me to give you two things to hang on your beak today as we walk from this, uh, as we look at this text and say, okay, Hafeditz, you know, if I had been there, I would have believed. Well, I hope so. Um, but let me give you two things about God's glory. It says, uh, number one, it's in your notes. The one who is the ultimate expression of divine glory allows us the great privilege of sharing in his glory in this life. Unfortunately, by the way, it has a little bit of a high price tag in that it, it it's going to inquire suffering and adversity, <laughs> but it's worth every ounce of sweat and blood. Second Corinthians, turn there just briefly. Second Corinthians, Paul talks about the glory of this life. Second Corinthians 4, we'll start in verse 10. Well, he says in verse 8, we're experiencing trouble on every side. Verse 10, always carrying around our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be visible in our bodies. As a result, death is at work in us, but life is also at work. And then he says in verse 15, for all these things are for your sake, so that the grace that is including more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. That glory that was revealed at Cana, is the same glory that we tap into as followers of Jesus Christ and can exalt. Isn't that exciting? That's why we're a holy priesthood, <laughs> right? That's why we have access to the throne room and, and exalt the name of the Lord and the glory that entails. Let me leave you with another, not only in this life, but for all eternity. You'd expect this with John. John, there is no such thing as fire insurance for the future and all the glory that awaits. For John, he takes it and he grabs it and he pulls it into this life as well. 
the abundance of life, the, the, the privilege of walking with the Lord, and all that that comes. It, it's for here and it's for there. And in Revelation 21, we see that it's a sharing that comes from dwelling in His presence forever. Eventually, we won't need a temple because the glorious one dwells in our midst and we in His for all eternity. And that glimpse of glory that was seen by Moses, <laughs> the glory that was seen in the 30-some years that Christ was on earth, we'll have 24-7 access before the throne. No wonder Paul stated in First Corinth, or excuse me, in Second Corinthians four, he goes on to state, "Therefore we do not despair, even if our physical body is wearing away." Someone said it's no fun getting old. They said that they told me that this morning. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. <laughs> for our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. The Maserati isn't going to look too great compared to God's glory. A pristine family isn't going to look too great for the glory of the Lord. He says, because we are not looking at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what can be seen is eternal. This one who dwelt in our midst is saying, come to me, share in this glory, and it is one that you'll experience here and for all eternity. Isn't that great? <laughs> Love it. Questions or comments? Cries of outrage? I've only picked a few. Yes, Eugene. Uh, they are the money makers, they're the money changers because the Jews required particular coins for sacrifice. Well, ultimately, yes, it's money making. You know what will really rock your world? Jews forbid graven images, but the coin they required for temple sacrifice was a Tyrian shekel. It had one side the face of a god and the other side an eagle. And why? Because it had the most silver content of any coin in the ancient world. <laughs> Some things never change, right? Hmm. <laughs> Christianity is not a religion in the sense of, be very careful, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the danger is allowing political agenda to drive the church. It is the bride of the glorious one, Christ. Well, I'm starting to preach. I probably Let, let me close. Any other questions or comments? I don't want to... Yes, Rick? That, that is just... Uh, it's be the Gentile area. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I'd go back to the map, but yeah. You go to the court of the Gentiles, then you go to the court of women. So Jewish men and women are allowed into that area. Then the, the court for the men, the priest, and eventually the high priest. That's the progression in the temple. Yeah, Paul. Well, I mean, they're certainly going to make quite a bit of money because of all the sacrifices. For There's three pilgrimages in the Jewish system in the first century. And the Passover was undoubtedly the largest. That's why Pilate is in Jerusalem because he's there for crowd control. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He stayed up at Caesarea 
even today, Caesarea is glorious. It's the only golf course in Israel is in Caesarea. I mean, it's stunning. Right? That's where he stayed. Um, Well, you're right. Uh, for some Jews, the Sadduceans you mentioned, they have a political alliance with Rome. That's their, their power base. And Jesus is upsetting the, the cart basket for them. For the Pharisees, their, their power base is the popularity among the people, which Jesus is also stealing. So these two parties, this religious, it's kind of like our Congress, these two religious parties that are coming together to control the Jews... Uh, or lead the Jews, um, Jesus is a real threat on that g ground alone. And it's very quick and easy to say, well, he's uh, blasphemous. He's a heretic. Just, just get rid of him. Isaac Watts, it's, this is in the bottom of your notes on the third page. He writes, and this is Old English, but listen to what he's saying. How divinely full of glory and pleasure shall that hour be when all the millions of mankind that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God shall meet together and stand around him with every tongue and every heart full of joy and praise. How astonishing will be the glory and the joy of that day when all the saints will join together in one common song of gratitude and love and everlasting thankfulness to the Redeemer. With that unknown delight and inexpressible satisfaction shall all that are saved from the ruins of sin and hell address the Lamb that was slain and rejoice in His presence. Our eyes are not going to be on what beloved ones are doing down on earth. Our eyes are going to be on that glorious Lamb. And we'll have all eternity to enjoy it. <laughs> Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how these themes come crashing in from the Old Testament into the New. It's not a coincidence that the first sign is turning water into wine in a little town called Cana during a wedding festival. There are messianic symbols that indeed this one who came and dwelt among us is the glorious one. And it's no wonder that those who observed believed and saw his glory. Father, that's our desire even today. Help us to get a greater glimpse of your glory as we live for you. And may our eyes not just be focused on the task of today, but may our eyes be focused on eternity. And may when others see us say, what's the deal? <laughs> Why are you joyful? Why are you hopeful in a world that's so chaotic? And we can say, ah, oh, we know the glorious one. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Be with these men today. I know some are carrying heavy burdens, and I just pray, Lord, that you would um, lift them up today. Put your arms, loving arms around them and guide them. In Jesus' name, amen.